I think I was born yesterday. I, I know all the tricks. Oh, One day we might actually eat some decent food, Steve. But we, we do normally. <laughs> one has to maintain one's gut. Otherwise you lose it. Hey guys, and welcome back to Young to Live By, the premier online outlet for depth psychology resources, giving you all the tools that you need to individuate properly, or in other words, become who you are. And thank you for joining myself and Steve and Pauline Richards for the third episode of our series Ask a Depth Psychologist, where people at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon can submit questions for us to dig into and expand upon. And basically it's a way of giving back to the community for us to become a family together. But first of all, Steve, Pauline, how are you today? Hi James. Hi, James. Hi everyone. Brilliant. Let's, uh, let's crack straight on into the questions then. We have nine questions today. And the first one comes from Lao Tsunami, which is a fantastic name, I must say. And he asks, he asks, is the animus related to the paternal spirit of culture, Osiris? If so, can trauma to the animus disrupt a woman's ability to integrate herself into culture and cause a feeling of alienation? What can be done about it? What, what do you think? Is there's, um, does Osiris um, play a role in people's lives? Well, it would if, if you were Tutankhamun, perhaps. I'm not being facetious when I say that, because the image that you choose to illustrate a fundamental dynamic will colour um, how you interpret that dynamic. So although I, I take it in general terms, Osiris, it's not relevant to somebody who is not into Egyptian mythology or Egyptian culture. So I'll, ju I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. With respect to the animus, um, wow, um, Paul? Um. What I probably would say is that I'm um, thinking about some of the friends that we have as well. We we found an awful lot of women mm. are into Egyptian culture and That's probably true. don't know why. That's true. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I, I did have a dream recently. I've told you two about it, but it was, it was kind of just an illustration of the collective unconscious that uh, I, I did appear. It was a very alchemical dream, as you guys know. But mm. uh, when um, randomly the backdrop changed from being in a restaurant to being like deep in an Egyptian temple with all these hieroglyphs mm. on the walls and everything else. And I've never had an interest in Egyptian culture. Like, it just hasn't resonated with me particularly. I've quite liked mm. Greek culture, obviously loved uh, old English yeah. culture, you know, War of the Roses, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. It never really yeah. kind of stuck. But that was one thing, actually, that put me off of mm. Jung in the very, very beginning, was he's very much... Um, he, the way his work is presented a lot of the time is here are loads of different myths and here's what they mean. But as, as, mm. as, as you two were saying, it's like you don't need the particular character to focus on you know if, if osiris doesn't resonate with you it doesn't matter you know if, mm. if god the father doesn't resonate it doesn't matter it's, it's mm. if in general to be completely honest the resultant images from your own dreams is probably the best way of getting into this stuff rather than jumping into the myths i don't know if you would yeah. agree with that or not yeah I, i'd agree it's completely different when something egyptian turns up spontaneously in a dream or a related state to you just uh, for example appropriating that to illustrate a point in an abstract way. Yes. So if somebody dreams of an Egyptian dream, that's immediately interesting because it's a fact, a fact that's been delivered directly from the unconscious and it has to be taken seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, Pauline's right. Uh, I can think of several. Yeah. And I'm running out of being able to yeah. count yeah. how many women that we've known over the years, socially and in terms of being clients or patients, who have had a fascination of Egypt uh, that said, very few of them were very conscious. Yes. Uh, and that made me wonder, and still does, uh, just what the point of the symbol, the attraction to that symbol was for them. It may well be rather like the Rosetta Stone, mm. 
mm. which we used to keep when we were in the NHS regularly. We actually have, had it. Have you still got the Rosetta Stone thing behind you? Yes, it is. Um, on the end there, yeah. Yeah, she was showing me this the other day. It was quite cool. This is yeah. It's just a model. Mm. Rather like Sigmund Freud had um, all sorts of gods and goddesses up on, on his table of his consulting room, we had the same kind of thing. And this is one which we found particularly useful. It's in three languages. And this is the stone, the original, which allowed the translation of hieroglyphs for the very first time. A French linguist, uh, Jean-Paul Champollion. And uh, one of the languages is Greek. And then the middle language is um, a cursive form of demotic which was partially understood and then there was hieroglyphs completely misunderstood unknown so we use that as a metaphor for consciousness greek the language of science and philosophy yeah. the known language the the cursive demotic script is that hinterland of the psyche the background where all the symbols start to emerge from the unconscious and take a definite form so that they can communicate to consciousness and the hieroglyphs themselves, being the unknown mm. language, is the language of the unconscious. Mm. But the, the usefulness of this as a symbol was that this message here is the same message written in three different languages. So the communication from the unconscious in its own terms passes through a transitional layer whereby it can communicate directly to ego consciousness, but still in symbolic form. <coughs> and then it emerges into consciousness in the language of everyday life the educated language symbolically greek for our culture so in that sense this was not so much a symbol um more of a metaphor perhaps but a very very useful one and going back to what, what i said some of these women who are into uh ancient egyptian culture to the point where they collect symbols and feel very mm. attached and attracted to them but have no conscious relationship to an understanding of them apart say from watching the history channel on tv or buying a few books but they don't integrate that fully well they're in a a, a stasis because they're not relating at all to the unconscious the unconscious is still communicating but they're not doing anything about it other than mm. relating externally still in an unconscious way so you then get a cycle where this uh, attraction to the, the Egyptian culture is still there because it's not being resolved. This is what Freud called, for example, repetition compulsion. Until you know what's coming through, it will keep coming until you can make that translation. Mm. So for people that we were working with, we would often say that, that your unknown story at the moment is written in the language of the hieroglyphs. Mm. And we don't know what it is. But by the time it becomes a cursive demotic communication we have some understanding of what it is by the time then we can get it into consciousness fully translated as one message you will have integrated what you need to integrate and the job is done yeah. so is that what the attraction to the egyptian uh, symbols and whatever else was yeah. is, is that what it meant basically is that you you have the hieroglyphs and the, the psyche is almost going i'm trying to give you a message and it's not being brought to consciousness or was it something yeah, in, yeah, in, in yeah, particular like they were attracted to say an animus symbol within it for some particular reason basically what were the commonalities between those patients well the the, the, the thing is that for people who are attracted to egypt it's rather this is my interpretation and it's based not simply on articulating ideas or colliding them it's based on clinical experience that as Jung said that if a Westerner in his day were to dream or to access symbols from the Far East, from China, he's pretty much at the bottom of the psyche. 
Mm. Um, I think it's similar with Egypt. Egypt is a kind of hinterland for Western culture. Uh, in many ways, they were precursors to the Greeks. There was a lot of communication with Greece, even in the Bronze Age, in the Mycenaean Age, and probably before that. So Egypt helped to seed Greece, but it is very, very different as a baseline culture. There was a lot of communication later, obviously, during Alexander the Great's period, the Hellenistic period. The Ptolemies, of, of whom Cleopatra was the last example, was a Macedonian by descent. In fact, she was an inbred Macedonian, and she was not uh, an ethnic Egyptian at all. And Egyptian culture at that time was a, a pure syncretism between Greece and Egypt. But if you go that far back, that the, the two are completely separated with respect to our consciousness, you have that gap, that chasm. And you see it an awful lot with women these days. Uh, and that's, yes. that's left us to, to consider whether or not, as Jung said about China, that you're getting deep into the bottom of what is not known and not articulated uh, for people who are, you know, animated, if you like, by uh, Egyptian culture and symbols. Mm. So if, if a woman's psyche selects a symbol like that, it suggests a degree of unconsciousness, doesn't it, yes. really? Yes, it does. Yeah, mm. just how removed from... Yeah consciousness it is mm. uh, exactly simply stated and uh, sorry about the over explanation no no no, no. so, so I'm just, just trying to relate this back to my, myself for a second so the fact that i yeah. had without any previous you know i learned it in school mm. maybe for like a day without any previous yeah. connection the fact i'm now in an egyptian temple could you then yeah. put that same diagnosis pauline onto on, onto me and be like there's something deeply unconscious here yes i would say so yeah. would you yeah I, I would i'd have a lot of caveats about that yeah because there's the context yeah. the context is you and beyond you the people you know um and where you are right now and this is why and i've said it uh, on the discord that i avoid doing dream analysis on the discord it's an easy thing to do because it's to do with dream analysis because all you're really doing is just putting your own thoughts ideas and immediate projections into material presented by someone else mm. and that is fallacy 101 when you work clinically with someone else and their dreams and also with your own it's an over amplification away from the material based on your own associations so before i'd be too prescriptive about interpreting that symbolism i'd want to know a lot more about you but if i can what i would say by way of further illustration is the little i do know about you and about your context then I would at least suspect that the Egyptian symbolism has to do with your anima. Yes. Yeah. And that uh, makes sense that, with the rest of the dream as well, as I'm sure I've told it, you before. It, it makes, yeah. It makes sense in the context of everything else that you're doing, but I would rather not be too specific about that. I'd want to understand the background of the message. I'd want to know what that message was and how we could translate it from the Egyptian hieroglyphs into mm. something you could be more conscious of. And that's the metaphor again of the Rosetta stone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think getting people to do that is the most difficult bit, isn't yes, it, really? It because is. you would have to be encouraged to amplify or to associate to that material yourself, uh, as I think Steve is saying, rather than having a therapist impose some kind of explanation on it yeah. for you. So, yeah. 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 Now, just, just by way of a, a caveat with respect to what I've just said, I'm not trying to put people off um, interpreting dreams because we... You know, if, if you want to become effective at doing that, you have to start somewhere. 
the psyche, if you're wrong, will do one or t of two things. Yeah. It will ignore you, which is healthy, yeah. obviously. Or two, it will produce some kind of counter-reaction to what you've suggested by way of an interpretation for a third party. That can be uh, a constructive uh, reaction from the psyche, or it can be its opposite, a destructive one. And that, that's where the risks come in. Generally, if you're wrong, it'll ignore you and just perhaps uh, send another dream. They're a bit like buses. There's always going to be another one along. Mm. So don't worry too much. Um, if you do attempt to interpret someone else's dreams, of course your own, and you get it wrong. Mm. Psyche wants you to be well. It wants to balance things out. Mm. But at the same time, don't prematurely think that you understand what you're saying. Yes. Give, yeah. give it time. Because very often, as Jung himself says, it's a dream series which reveals things. Occasionally, you get a big dream, uh, which really stands out. But again, we have to be careful about misinterpreting that. And again, Jung was very, um, very fond of referring back to the Greek oracles. Uh, and there's one uh, which I think it was King Croesus of Lydia consulted um, an oracle. Uh, and he wanted to know should he cross a certain river in order to attack his enemy and the reply was from the delphic oracle if king croesus crosses the river a great empire will be destroyed so he did and his own was destroyed you have to be careful yeah but yeah with that caveat in mind yeah go ahead because there's no other way of gaining experience than the gaining of it and if you're sincere in your heart then the psyche will forgive you yeah. I mean, we used to have uh, patients come in and, and they'd come in with five yeah. or six dreams, didn't well, they typically? More, yeah. Well, so, for you, it seems yeah. particularly. Yeah. And they just kind of like plop them down on the table and yeah. expect you to just go through everything and say what everything meant and yeah. how, how it all linked up together. Part of the transference. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, and I think the thrust of a, a lot of what we're doing here is to encourage people to do it for themselves, obviously with some guidance, with some help. Yeah. There's always resistance to that because, you know, because of the transfers, people want you to do it for them. Yeah. Um, but the more that you can associate on your own material, the better. And, and then, you know, if you've got somebody close to you, um, you know, a partner who's involved in what you're doing or and or a therapist, um, to work that through between you. But mm. it shouldn't just be a case of what does this mean? Um, what does that mean? And and so on. And like Steve says, it's got to be context specific anyway. But the more you can do, the more you try yeah. yourself, the Absolutely. better. Yeah. If somebody comes in and, and presents a dream uh, and they have their own interpretation of it, of course I listen to it, but yes. I try and look around it all the time. Mm. I, I look at the person who's telling me this, what is their context mm. and what is standing behind them? In other words, the hieroglyph, hieroglyph uh, level of explanation, if you like, that's pushing these symbols through into consciousness for them and is looking to see how the, uh, the patient, client and, say, myself will interact and interpret the material because it's watching me or Pauline or yes. whoever the therapist is as closely as it watches the personality of the dreamer. So it's a big, big picture. And sometimes what appears on the surface as a dream is literally just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And that's really what makes it interesting. It's that alchemical process of relationship with another human being and how you work with that. Mm. Sometimes if you ignore a dream deliberately on an intuition that somebody brings in, you'll get a very strong reaction from the psyche. But that's just a hypothesis that you test at the time saying, well, I'm not really sure what this is, so I'm going to ignore it mm. and see what happens. 
and then you'll you'll get a little indication of where you might be going wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's got. Sorry, Jen, it's just going to say no, it's, cool. it's, Go probably, it's probably good to try and get to a point where, if you say in a clinical situation, you're working with someone, where you have an agreement almost between yourselves that if you offer something and it's not right. The, the patient, yeah. the person says, well, no, that, yes. that doesn't fit, that doesn't feel right. I mean, we do that for one another, don't we, we as do. much as yeah. we can. Yeah. Uh, and some things hit home, as you'd expect. And it's like, uh, you know, like a light going on and other things you just think, mm, no, it's just kind of skimming off and it's it's just it just doesn't feel right at all. So yeah. I think to have that openness and, and to just allow things to unfold is probably very important. Yeah, I, I, I know from my own uh, long experience uh, with Pauline, of, uh, because say for 40 years we've been working on each other's dreams, that early on my intuition got ahead of itself. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, because intuition is a very persuasive thing, you can also suggest to yourself that you understand something when you don't. And this is where you have to be careful. And in those early days, I would probably come out with something and trust my intuition too much. Yes. And then it would turn out you were completely wrong, but you were so convinced by yeah. your typology, by your extroverted intuition. So I thought, mm, I've got to change this. I've got to be flexible enough yeah to change that, which means my ego, my ego position, my consciousness has to change and has to adapt. And yeah. that was a, was a gradual yeah. process. Yeah, this, it's a good point to raise really, because intuition is so good at making connections between things. I mean, you, you got to a point, like you say, you were so good at it. You could probably just almost straight away form those connections, say between the dream series and, yeah. and offer an explanation for what it all might mean yeah. in a kind of neat package. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you'd be bang on. Some, sometimes, but, yeah. But you do, you do have to but at least not, be sometimes. aware of it. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and in the end, the process of analysis and its apparent success, uh, because you seem to be hitting the mark, yeah. becomes more important than the phenomenon itself. Uh, and of course, over the decades, you learn to change that. Um, and particularly when someone starts analysing your dreams with a different style. And then you see it's possible to be done in a different way. Yeah. And then when you expand out your work, so you're working with other people and their dreams, that changes everything. Yes. So yes. That, that's why I'm, I'm reticent to interpret dreams, except in the most superficial of ways, unless I know mm. something about the background of the person. And, and when it comes to your own dreams, the background of yourself. So the, when you were speaking there about making, you know, making mistakes in dream reading, uh, or dream interpretation even, I, uh, I've been collecting my dreams about 18 months now, every night if I can remember them. And the more I'm engaged, the more I remember them and the more dreams I seem to actually have. Definitely. Seems to yeah, be, seems that, be the psyche sort of allowing it, right? Um, but yeah. but uh, I realized looking back over my, you know, I had this nice spreadsheet up. It was like dream meta analysis. And I was just going through mm. very, very TI mode. Very, very like, mm. well, this symbol means anima. This symbol means this. Not really mm. knowing what the things really meant. But the, the, the key thing which helped me was realizing dreams compensate for things. They don't tell you things usually that you already know on the surface. Mm. You compensate know? Or so, yeah. 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 So, so to my dreams at the time, I was like, oh, well, I guess I need to work harder. You know, that was the interpretation. 
when when yes. really I didn't need to work harder. It was it was the complete opposite. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, work, uh, work harder or get up on time. You know, there'd be things yes. involving time, and I'd be like, well, obviously I'm not using my time more effect more effectively. It was just reasserting my own current ego attitude. But no, looking back on them, they all were formed this weird recurring dream sequence, which meant something completely different to what I to, to what what I originally did. It's not, sorry, there's not enough uh, emphasis on personal associations usually. And I think that's the best place to start because if you if you get caught up in all the archetypal stuff, it can just be besides the point for the reasons that we've been discussing over and over again in the podcast really, that it doesn't bring you any closer to your own personal myth. So that's the place to start is your own mm. personal associations to the content. Mm. And, um, and, and get rid of all dream books along the way as well. Put them, oh, in, definitely. Put, put them in a fire, burn them away. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, without a doubt, yeah. Definitely. Well, we, we've... Um... I thought the complementarity that Pauline yes. raised. Um, uh, compensation is obviously the basic idea of homeostasis and balance, but complementarity is often overlooked. Mm. Sometimes uh, the attitude of consciousness is right, and the dream complements adds to that and offers an extension of that. But you never know. You never really, really know in the moment. You have to look back and see what the trend is yes. and then adjust accordingly. Certainly, certainly. Well, I think we've got it's a little bit, and it's all good. We've got a little bit sidetrack off of Lau's question um, because this the sort of the second half of Lau's question is about. Uh, so he's talking about is the animus related to the paternal spirit of culture, which would be Osiris. But he again goes on and asks, uh, can trauma to the animus disrupt a woman's ability to integrate herself into culture and cause a feeling of alienation? And if so, what can be done about it? Yeah, I would say so. That's yes, that, method, yes, it? It, it is. Yeah. Um, I, yes, I think without a doubt. Um, I'm just reminded too of um, uh, a Jungian analyst called John Destian's work as well. Yeah. Um, I think you're familiar with his book, James Coming mm -hmm. Together, Coming Apart. Yep. Yep. Um, and he introduces a couple of concepts which might be useful here and he, he talks about the idea of the prevailing spirit which is the spirit of the culture um, and a woman's own essential spirit and the kind of the collision of the two um, and I guess again the more a woman um, is developed on the inside the more she can resist pressures from the culture that might have a negative influence on her so I, I think that's just it's just quite um, a simple but useful distinction to make between those two things otherwise there is no separation there is no consciousness of those two things being different from one another mm. um, and of course with all these things you know they, they feed in um, so yeah i think if um if a woman thinks in those terms uh and she develops herself on the inside it will be easier to resist some of those forces particularly if they're in a negative form yeah yeah definitely it reminded me from that book i was reading it last night actually and when you mentioned yeah. Lao about alienation the, yeah. the 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 guy who wrote, who wrote the book he talks about um uh, infatuation and when this is the same for a man with his anima but say a woman becomes infatuated with a man she'll project yes. her animus onto this man and in, in the process he talks about you feel like you're alive so it's like all of your senses become activated mm. you know you, you it's, it's just that a feeling of being alive but of course mm. in that happens the ego is being bombarded with um you know un unconscious contents 
basically. Mm -hmm. So in terms of alienation, if you have got some strong animus activation in whatever sense, possession, uh, projection, Mm -hmm. anything like that, then yeah, there will be a sense of alienation, especially if if it's projected onto somebody else and the love or the infatuation isn't returned. I imagine that's probably a case of alienated. Yes. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that answers that uh, that first question. Uh, thank you, Lau. Lau's asked two. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, he's also asked two more questions, though. Um, uh, and, and he asks, "How do people relate to the same-sex energy? For men, is the animus the senex, or is that a different thing?" Well, I say it was a different thing. Uh, senex in Jungian circles is usually used pejoratively um, to represent someone who is either elderly or older and has fossilized, become concrete, or to a young person who is prematurely aged psychologically or perhaps got beyond themselves and assumed something, say, wisdom beyond their their years, and it's actually paralyzing and crippling because they lose their energy for adaptation to the first half of life by acting as if they're in the second half of life and they're not. So you can have a Senex in their 20s easily. Um, it's yeah. more appropriate your senex when you're older but it's still not good necessarily to start to turn into a fossil and to stop living mm. when you're older yeah. too so there is a senex pathology so uh, yeah that would be different that's a different thing mm. so when, when you're a young man be a young man basically allow your lifespan to unfold essentially. yes yes yeah, that's the task yeah, of that's what... absolutely right to sorry do that. No. no no it's okay. the task of the first half of life mm. if we follow young yeah yes on that of course some people though will individuate uh, more quickly and also differently in a qualitative sense and will bring in positive Sanex elements into their, their life when they're younger. The proof of it is in the result. You know, um, does this allow a person to adapt more productively or is it actually fueling or just representing a neurosis? And that's a question for an individual to ask of themselves. Yes, it's when the, when this type of individual perhaps gets more socially withdrawn and it's like, I, I, I have my wisdom. I am bearing my wisdom. The world does not understand my wisdom. I, I am, but I'm born in the wrong generation. This type of thing, I imagine, is kind of the, the thought be, process. And, and sometimes with, with people who say those kinds of things when they're young, they actually do have a huge amount of potential, but something has blocked it. So the way around it is to fantasize about being older than they are. Yeah. You will get this, for example, with uh, young people who speak as if they've lived for a thousand years mm-hmm. uh, and they, they've had uh, experience greater than anybody and, and, and they carry that kind of wisdom. And what's behind that very often is that they have more life ahead of them than they do behind them. So in effect, they know that all experience that's worth having has been had before they were even born. So let's learn from the past. That would be the positive way of looking at it. Yeah. But then if you bring the past forward as if you knew these people, if you knew Nietzsche, as some some people do at the moment on the internet, they talk about Nietzsche yes. as if he was a friend or something, you know, and then handed down some form of psychotherapy to him, and Nietzsche wasn't even into psychotherapy, or any of the, those philosophers or great thinkers from the past, they're acquiring something, they're acquiring by proxy um, a reference to knowledge and wisdom they simply cannot have and they're failing to be young people mm-hmm. they're failing to live according to their lifespan development program the senex will come later you know give it time be who you should be at that time and at that moment so young people very often 
um, will look to the past because they have a future. The future sorted, they believe that they'll they'll go there, but they have no past. They have no experience. But with old people, they have no future, and they look to the past in a different way, which causes them to look forward into a fantasy, imagine the future of what it would be like for their grandchildren and great grandchildren. If only their life could extend that far forward. And what they've learned through their timeline and through their learning of previous generations' timeline, they could take that wisdom forward. Or, or they become senexes and they become fossilized and unable to relate to young people and to pass on the, the wisdom of experience of their own generation and what they've acquired from the generations past. So you have a, a poor pathology and a senex pathology. And they're both actually opposite sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I think it can be a compensation too for parents' lack of development sometimes yeah, as point. well. Great point. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you've got a a mum and dad who maybe are poors and poellas themselves, then what else can you do but look to the past mm -hmm. to yeah. gain the wisdom that you need to go into the future and to develop yourself? I and mean, if it's not there within the context of your family. Yeah, it's it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? Parents who are still children. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How can they raise children if they're still children? Yes. Yeah. And if their development is arrested. Yeah. Then the the example they're giving of wisdom is to be an eternal child. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's dangerous. It, yeah. It's, it, it's, I mean, if you know, you get such notions uh, certainly in women's psychology, such as the uh, unmothered mother. You know, the the mother who is biologically able to have a child and has a child, but because she hasn't been mothered properly herself, then, then that mother-child um, relationship um, gets off to a difficult start. And like Steve, I think is suggesting, well, where do you go then? Where do you go for, um, who do you look to to model what you should be doing? Yeah. And you see it a lot yeah, in the culture where mothers and daughters are more like sisters, mm. for example. The mothers and daughters, they dress the same, they go out to, to clubs together, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and you see the lack of maturity in the mother um, and sometimes, you know, more maturity in the daughter. But nonetheless, they're kind of caught in this trap where neither really can develop properly. Mm. So it's probably just something else to look out for. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's a really good point because it highlights why young people very often project onto these big collective personalities um, who might be heading up a cultural movement at the moment. Say if it's a bloke or a man, mm -hmm. then he will get a father transference essentially yeah. and a projection of the unactualized father archetype, yeah, it's got to which, go somewhere, yeah, which it? is powered by the instincts that that young person has to actualize themselves mm -hmm. in relationship to a significant male other who yeah. will initiate them and bring them through various transformations lifespan development transformations if they're lucky they'll project onto the right person if they're not then that person will become a pied piper and will lead them over the cliff yes. into the abyss yes. so beware of these people mm. uh, keep your discrimination yeah properly yeah. engaged yeah, this is what I was talking to a guy in the, it was um, a, a Furian actually, whose question is going to be coming out very, very soon, about uh, trusting your own psychobiological instinct, essentially, because at, at university, from basically day one, I decided to take on myself, based on past trauma with, with an ex-girlfriend, I decided to basically be a dad, not to other people, but to be a mature, responsible person and, and whatever else, and of course I've slipped up and whatever else, but uh, at university, I didn't have the university experience, if you like, for as degenerate as it might be, you know, partying 
and drinking and generally yeah. being social. I didn't have that at university, right? Then I go on my master's degree. I turn up to Canterbury, and to me, in my mind, Canterbury with the with the with the cathedral and the old English yeah. architecture, it's like an image yeah. of the kingdom of God to me. It's a wonderful thing, and I only figured out recently why that was and why I'm so desperate to go back, and it's because mm. I was free there. I was absolutely free from any kind of, we'll say, parental in, parental interject, any kind of um, external or internal obligation. I had sort of like the world mapped out in front of me, and I could actually explore and engage with my own personal myth, my own personal path for the for the mm-hmm. first time in forever. So I guess to sort of give the, I guess the young person's perspective on this, the idea is not necessarily you have to abandon wisdom and 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 abandon trying to improve yourself and instead just be a young person it's simply engage on the journey i guess and to focus on your own personal myth rather than skipping to the end because that's what i tried to do and then i ended up being like why do i why am i desperate to go back to the place in which i was free where every single thursday they would have really really cheap hikes high percent beer and i was drawn to go there with my friends and it was great fun and i was actually enjoying myself letting those lofty ideas of responsibility and bare wisdom and pass the torch so i've got time for that when i'm you know 35 40 for now relax be free right yes yes yeah definitely yes sweet sweet well we have a cool we got we got a a third question here from laut tsunami and uh, and he asks are people's relationship with their fathers related to how they relate to the divine like in christianity it talks about the heavenly father is this an animus projection? Well, it would be for a female, wouldn't mm. it? Potentially, if she was part of, say, Christianity or Judaism or Islam or anything which has a monotheistic, paternal uh, deity, that will draw that out. Mm. Um, Freud, for example, yeah. uh, Jewish, not Christian. Mm. Um, he was also very much a rationalist and, and a Darwinian, fundamentally, uh, said that this is a paraphrase but more or less accurate that psychoanalysis concludes that the father and god really are the same thing um from the perspective of the child in the cradle when he looks up at his father in effect that is god Uh, and that was more or less his position very different from Jung, of course because Jung wanted to see it as an active uh, dynamic within the psyche and uh, looked into the religious function as he called it in a positive sense um freud was more of a rationalist and a materialist and a darwinist mm. uh, and wanted to separate things off as he saw it properly um and he thought that people uh, should be neurotic for proper reasons individual reasons rather than adopt what he called a collective neurosis and that was um was his version of the interpretation of religion quite dark quite negative but yes, fundamentally, it depends on your starting point, where you're coming from, uh, how your psyche has stacked itself up over your, your lifespan developments in coordination with your culture and your learning. That will produce the representations um, that are projected symbolically out onto other people and into the culture. And then what you bounce back through introjection into your psyche mm-hmm. with a sympathetic resonance. So, yeah, it can be absolutely no doubt. But, mm-hmm. you know... Um, in broad terms, who are we talking about? Are we talking about someone who follows a monotheistic faith? Or are we talking about a Hindu? Or are we talking about perhaps someone from China uh, where female deity is quite common, you know, uh, and the connection to them? 
So again, context is everything, but it's yeah. a great question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to bring in the idea of context as well, actually, because, you know, take, say, the Gospels. From Jesus's perspective, God would represent something else or Heavenly Father, potentially, than, say, Mary mm. Magdalene would. And then mm. in, in the same case, because re- religion is such a... Uh, it's, it's difficult to be analytical and go like, well, Jesus was this archetype or this symbol or this image, for example, because yeah. you're actually in the religion and it becomes something real for you and you engage with it. So it's like for mm. each different person, it would be a different thing. And I think that we, we discussed before um, in terms of an archetype being a whole situation and not a particular character, yes. all of that, of yes. course, becomes relevant in this, in, in, in this context. Yeah. So, 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 so to allow, I guess, if, if, if you're a, a religious person, it would be something personal to you rather than looking to the text and top down going, into it and saying like well this must mean it's this archetype it's like what does it feel what emotions does it bring up for you yeah the, the, the crucifixion is um in a context and the meaning that the christians ascribe to that is the whole thing it's not just the act of that although people treat it as if it were if you simply have the the image of the hanged man that is that is a an image which appears in all sorts of contexts they're all related contexts though mm. but they're not related on the surface they're related at deep structure on the surface structure there's all the variations between the various forms that the hanged man image has taken but for a christian the archetype is the story and it begins in the old testament because yes. the old testament gives the new testament meaning yes the difference between the two is a continuity of meaning that without the Old Testament, the New Testament is means nothing at all. So it's the whole life of Christ as believed in by Christians that is the archetype which uh, summates in the resurrection, even more than the crucifixion itself. So don't abstract things out from it. You'll just tie yourself up in knots. If you want to understand that, look at the whole context. Yeah, beginning with, in this particular case, Adam and Eve. Adam taking the apple. This, this was Aquinas' thing, I believe. Adam, Adam, Adam taking the apple off the tree and then Christ being hung back on the tree to atone for the initial mistake. So, yeah. and it's, But in, in that particular instance, it becomes more difficult because then, in its traditional religious sense, you can't really go and... You can't just pick out something from the gospel and read it at a, at a you can in a depth psychology sense pick something out and give a give a reading and be like well this is the moral of the story because that's kind of like yeah. a shallow thing and our audience does tend to be very intelligent people who kind of oh, really yes. get it yeah. they really get it and it's like well it's no wonder you can't turn to something like that you know not to take away from that but it's like you'll be after something deeper in what things are trying to understand um, it's know? the opportunity for the abuse of power once you abstract things out of their context and weaponize them. And you do see this in uh, religious people, so-called, who want to control others, you know, and want to punish them and want to harm and hurt them. This is the dark side of that religion, mm-hmm. as you can experience it in everyday life. Uh, look at it in its totality, as you should a dream. Don't abstract things out from a dream. What does the dream say? Mm. Not Definitely. what do we say about it. You know? What does the dream itself say? What's the fabric of it? What's the, what's the lighting like in a dream? That part, the background, all of that, the, the, the shades of colour, the transitions, mm. everything means something. If you just focus on the characters, you're not understanding the context. You really do have to see everything to understand the dream. And something as big as that, which you've just been discussing, you need to see the whole picture. Yeah. Someone who, who wants to abuse you or influence you will abstract something out and weaponize it. Yeah. And it's the same with therapists, believe it or not. They mm. do it all the time because there's a lot of power that goes on in the helping professions. Be very careful. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay. 
Well, we have... Yeah, um, I mean, oh, go ahead, go ahead, ahead Pauline. I was just going to add a little bit to that, because sort of coming back to the actual be um, beginning of the question. Um, I think, because we know quite a few women who are Christian women who are religious in that way, yeah. Um, and they do literally give their, their animus in that spiritual form over to God. Um, and in doing so, they, they, they give up their own, in essence, their, their own power over themselves. Uh, and obviously in a, in a negative form, um, they'll use that to abuse themselves. Or as I think Steve was suggesting, they project it out and, and, and they sadly abuse others with it. Yes. Um, so yes, I think I think that can happen, but again, it tends to happen in people who are very unconscious. Yes, women who are very unconscious, and they allow it literally to run their lives, to di to yeah. di direct their lives for them. So they yeah. kind of give themselves over implicitly to this higher authority, which will answer all the questions that they have for them and in doing so they, they give up their own strength their own feminine power really so that's, that's power of the word then it's isn't it? power of the word again without a, a doubt oh it absolutely it yeah. is um i mean we've seen it so so many times even, yep. even within our, our our own families mm -hmm. um if you don't mind me mentioning no, no. say your mum for example no, um go ahead <laughs> if she was unwell yeah. and went to the doctor for something the the, the doctor's word was gospel Literally. literally gospel and that could not be challenged so even if he or she said something that, that was harmful or gave the wrong kind of medication out or whatever it didn't matter because the doctor said it was what she should have and you couldn't budge her on no. that at all could you no. no the doctor says you have to have your tonsils out yes what yes off you go yes here comes the gas yes yeah uh, and some children died they did under tonsillectomies when I yeah. was young. Yeah. Completely unnecessary operation, yeah. unnecessary risk, mm. but the doctor said it. Yes, so you go along with this. So you have to. Yeah, it's one of those, um, we've talked about it before with respect to the animals, one of those unassailable truths. Yeah. It can't be questioned, it's this is how it is, yeah. so therefore this is how I'm going to act. Yeah. And you know, when a woman gets in that state, that possession state, she gives herself over to it. Yeah. Whether it's your whether it's your GP or you give it to Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter. You lose yeah. your own inner authority at that point. Yeah, yeah. certain political movements you as do. well. Definitely, you do. Yeah. So the next question comes from Atherian, and uh, he asks, "What happens when people individuate too quickly?" I made amazing and rapid progress after joining the Discord. However, with a everything, I see what he did there. He put an A in front of the E, like you, like your username. With everything mm. moving so fast, I felt something I can only describe as ego inflation. I'm quite sure it was all genuine and good progress. However, it happened so quick it became overwhelming. My question then is, what exactly happens from a theory perspective when someone individuates too quickly, and do you have any relevant clinical experience with this? I can give my own two cents on my own. Um, yes, please, yeah. my, my own development but in terms yeah, of the actual question if you've got, got any theory that would be great to get out straight away <laughs> yeah go ahead James that, that, yes that's please hear, do let's yeah. hear your theory right well well in terms of uh, I've, I've I've individuated we can say obviously it's not a complete process but over the last two and a half months it's been incredibly intense so obviously uh, you guys have probably seen the how young saved me from Dante's hell video yes. where, where I describe what had gone up to that point but the idea is not and this is how some people in the comments interpreted it I'm now suddenly a wise a wise old man 
if, if, if you like. I've got all the wisdom and now I know what my true calling is. It's way clearer than it was, but the development keeps going. So the idea with individuation, of course, is becoming who you are. And so the general process for me at this early stage, which will be very similar to lots of other people, is you've got to get rid of all of those introjects from all those other influences, such as traumas, such as your parents, that are stopping you being who you are. You're, the current ways in which you've adapted in a usually maladaptive fashion to who you should be as as, as, as such. So I, what from my experience is it's quite overwhelming because when you engage with the psyche properly, the psyche will keep throwing things at you. And so, so for me, for example, my productivity was very difficult to maintain and it was nowhere near as intense as it was, but it was difficult to maintain because uh, I would get weird um, psychosomatic transductions, things like that. So yes. pe people know that I had my dissociation stuff, which was a sign that you've yep. been decapitated. But then I also yes. started to get a really heavy hurting heart for a, for a yes. little while. And it was kind of, that mm. was it, a heavy heart. And that kind mm. of threw me off because I can't sit there and focus because I'm thinking I'm going to die. You know, yes. and so it does kind of, it drains you, I think, as, as you were saying, Pauline, last time in the Animus podcast, drains you in a good way when you're engaged with something properly. But yes. the, the, the advice for what it's worth, Aetherian, is um, uh, something you've said to me, Steve, is definitely go at your own pace. And the thing is, if you respect the psyche, it seems to allow you to get a, get away with things a bit more. That You don't have yes. to constantly be individuating day in, day out and go into your, yes. into your cave and resolve all of your complexes. You can get on with normal life. But just keep well, engaging with the well, process. Normal life won't allow you to do anything, will it? When you when you think about it, and we talked, um, I think on the last few podcasts actually about uh, individuation not happening in a vacuum. Steve, I think rightly said that you have to start on the inside, and, yes. and then that's a, a good thing to do. Um, but ultimately, you have to go out and live it. And sometimes life won't allow you to necessarily rush ahead and do it at the pace that you might like to do it in, in an intellectual sense. Um, so I think there are just natural breaks on things anyway yeah, 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 um, yeah. over the course of your life. And, and obviously um, in terms of life, lifespan development, as you grow and get older and new challenges present themselves, you, you, you're constantly adapting to those experiences yeah. as well. So yeah. it's not just purely inwardly focused is it it's an interactive process as well and and so in that sense it can only really unfold at a particular pace yeah um yeah i'd, I'd agree with all of that um to go back to ethereum's questions though the, the second part was to do with clinical experience yes and then the first one is it possible to individuate um well what exactly happens from a theory perspective when someone individuates too quickly so the okay. presupposition uh, is people can just to, to, if I can, uh, just for the sake of mm. development of, of, of a point, mm. to reduce that down to the major premise. The major premise itself is, is sadly inaccurate because you cannot individuate too quickly. Mm. You can't. Mm. If something goes wrong when you are individuating, you haven't individuated. Yes. It's a process dynamic that is teleologically driven. In other words, the, the goal is anticipated at the beginning. Now, the, because it's released naturally from the genome, from the genomic self, as you're intended to become who you should be, the, the pace is relatively slow under normal environmental conditions. If you artificially, though, give it a kickstart, which anyone following this path is doing, mm. the pace increases and mm. that will throw your homeostasis mm -hmm. out. Um, symptoms of your homeostasis being kicked out might be the kind of thing that, that Ethereum is talking about. I would not see that 
as being the same thing as, for example, uh, an inflation of the ego or ego that occurs in a clinical setting when somebody accesses things that are too big for their personality to hold. That's different. This is someone, knowing the uh, Ethereum as I do, um, I've communicated and talked with him um, directly and personally. Mm. I know that this guy has immense mm. potential personally. Yes. Definitely. And as that potential is launched, it's going to stress his normal capacity to self-regulate how he's lived his life up until this point. Um, that's entirely something which you can anticipate. And yeah, I was aware that that would probably happen, but I'm also very aware that his potential is such that he will be able to counter that. And he will be able to articulate the process as he's going through it, and he's just done that. Mm, so yes. in essence, he is doing the right thing in the right way. He's showing that he's observing himself developing. He's asking very intelligent questions. He's aware of the trajectory that this will naturally take. So in that sense, I have no real concerns for him, to be quite honest. Mm. Um, but I would say it is completely different from a clinical case where somebody becomes inflated by identifying with something that the ego cannot normally contain. Yeah. Uh, but when you do see that, um, you do get people who either get religious, as it's called in psychiatry, ideation, ideas, which possess them. They start to overreach themselves. Um, and then things start to break down. They may go into hypomania, for example, uh, which can have a biological cause, an entirely genetic cause, and it's psychologically. Mm. But you get then two phenomena which look the same, but which are actually different. This is where you have to be careful about what you interpret, because someone with a psychiatric background might say of someone who just has a, a relatively minor ego inflation, they're hypomanic. The next thing you know, they're on lithium. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they've acquired themselves a psychiatric label and probably a psychiatric career, which will damage their individuation. But feeling the um, the forces within you wanting to propel you forward by feeling them consciously and therefore knowing that they're there, mm. you are paradoxically not inflated. Yes. You you have insight into the process, whereas someone who is truly inflated has no idea. Mm -hmm. at all that there's anything wrong with them or that they're exceeding their boundaries in terms of, of what they can healthfully maintain as a system so uh, i wouldn't worry uh, if, if there was any worry i don't think there will be i think he's just asking a very helpful question because he's a very bright lad mm -hmm. um and that's helping us to explain some things in answering the question Perfect, perfect, perfect. I, I'll also add into the mix as well. This might be relevant. Uh, the more engaged you, you are, and it seems like you are, um, we, we did very recently, um, all three of us actually, had a very weird paranormal phenomenon which, which took place, yes. which was um, these things do tend to increase, and synchronicities do tend to increase the more engaged yes. you are with the process. This has happened yes. with some of the people that I've been working with on, on, the, on the side to try and help them individuate mm -hmm. either in either in the, the signal group mm -hmm. which I run at the Patreon or in real life the amount of synchronicities do increase but the paranormal one we had was incredibly strange just to sort of just sort of briefly go over it if it's gonna not gonna upset the gods or anything like that um, suddenly all, all tech on my end stopped working all tech on your end stopped working Steve uh, the, mm -hmm. this, this is when we got the shadow integration manual out mm -hmm. and yes. I was I was inundated with emails from loads and loads and loads of you guys going the link doesn't work 
but the link yeah. was working and it was working yeah. with, with, with Jane who was tested it. It worked on your end when it tested it. It worked with other guys in the team who tested it. It just suddenly yeah. stopped working. Yeah. And Jane yeah. and I were, were sitting there in the other room on the, on, on the bed. I was kind of like, what's going on? Why is all the tech not working? Then we both heard a disembodied voice just speak something really spooky. We both heard it and there was nowhere it could have happened. And then our dog mm -hmm. Flynn went up to the window and started looking out the window and woofing at stuff that wasn't there. It's like, okay, there's something to do with my shadow. I'm not taking into effect. And because I'm engaged and I'm going on this path, the psyche's like, wake up, like we were saying yes. something like last time. Yes. So this well, does, stuff does happen. I, I did say, I think on the first podcast that this kind of thing will happen. I predicted it would. Do you remember that, James? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Um, and it's an index a really good measure objectively because it's external to you a manifest phenomenon that you are actually stirring up the underworld yeah. and that's a form of homeostasis as well that suddenly you know you're accelerating out of the blocks and it creates a drag like frame dragging around a black hole mm -hmm. for those of you who are familiar with uh, with physics what happens then you get all sorts of distortions of space-time and it's like that in psychological space-time that when somebody starts to move quickly and uh, the incredible mass of the collective unconscious gets articulated, you get these huge tidal forces and you get disturbances all around you, which we articulate as being synchronicities and paranormal phenomena. Mm -hmm. It's all uh, very uh, scary when it happens, but very, very exciting to sort of look back. It's great though, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're an experimenter, and you like to experience real world, then it, it, it's good. It's good. For, it's a bit frustrating when things start to really go bananas, like books fly off shelves and open and things like that, which has happened a lot. And all sorts of weird things like inanimate objects deciding to appear from underneath another one and then do a right angle and roll between your feet <laughs> and stuff like that, you know. And yeah. Poltergeist activity knocking on your front door and threatening weird dreams and stuff, you know. But yeah, a lot, a lot can happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it happens in the moment, it does, yeah. and it's to do with the state of your psyche and anyone else you're connected with. And the more people who are connected with it, the bigger the phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, on that uh, on that kind of scary note, hope that helped, Aetherian. And uh, one thing, of course, you can, Pauline. Go for it. Um, I'm thinking about therapy situations again as um, as well, is that sometimes you get somebody coming and they actually need, they're, they're inflated, but not in the right direction. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, people do actually need to be inflated in the right way in a homeostatic sense. Um, so, you know, I don't know the young gentleman concerned, Steve obviously does, yeah. and, and yourself, um, but sometimes... You know, you'll get someone, for example, who has um, a superiority complex um, because, yeah, so they're, they're behaving in an in inferior way because this is how the theory goes. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to compensate for that. The compensation is opposite, isn't it, yes, to, it is. um, yeah. to what you would expect, really. So that someone who's got a superiority complex is actually better than how they're presenting themselves yeah, they but they're not an actually way, they act in they? an inferior way to compensate for that superiority yes. in front of other people That's basically right. to pull themselves down just like yes. the inferiority complex yes. overcompensates yeah. with superiority yeah. yeah yeah so it's just something to look out for because it's not necessarily a bad thing no. to be inflated. Again, it depends on the context. It does. It? You can be negatively inflated. You can, yes. And that's a clinical feature which yes. Young talks about negative inflation. 
Yeah. And with a polarity mm. like inferiority, superiority complexes, which mm. are not reality based in terms of what's best for that person or their environment, sometimes you need to help them shift the energy from one of those poles to the other. Yes. They do. are inflated, as Paul says, but in the wrong, in direction. The wrong direction. So you need yeah. to help them to bring some of that energy back, and then that will overcompensate and then find the balance point, yes. which is in a, a dynamic equilibrium state yes. that helps maintain their psyche and their social relationships. Yeah. So for the, for the next question, this one comes from 69 Conans, which is of course a fantastic name. And he asks, are there any good books or resources on parenting that you would recommend? In short, mm -hmm. how do I give my kids the least amount of issues possible? I, I think it's impossible not to. Um, and I think if you if you start with that premise, you're almost going to fail, really, because at the end of the day, you're human. You're a human being before you're a parent. Mm. Um, and I don't think I mean, we, we look back now. I mean, both of our you know kids are pretty much grown up. Uh, I don't think we could have done it any better or no. any differently to, to what we have done. Um, but they are what they are. They are they? what they are, yes. And uh, very often what appears to be a neurosis within a family is just mm. somebody trying to abstract themselves out and away in order to be an individual. So you can give someone a too facilitative environment, yes. which their biology forces them to reject in order to, to leave home and to individuate. So you, you'll, you'll then get, you know, if a family has been given a child unconditional positive regard we don't believe in that by the way but, no. but it is a philosophy of yes. sorts as pushed by uh carl rogers school it, of creates therapy. Monsters, it, it can create monsters because they just they they have to separate and develop their own identity from that background and in so doing they overcompensate for what they've been given and you very often get like policemen's sons will be criminals yes. or uh, priest sons will become mm. whatever yeah uh, in compensation for the background that they have mm. I think the best thing you can do is, is to give as much love as you can from within yourself, according to your own value set. Um, and that's the best you can do. They will individuate away from you. That, mm. And in a way mm. we should want that. We should want them to be themselves, whatever that is. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think because um, obviously we, we, we home educated uh, both our kids um, Maybe the one thing that, that, that actually honed for us was, because we had to obviously provide an education, was to try and make it as bespoke as we could, yes. uh, which kind of forces you to say, well, what, you know, what is right for this person as opposed to what I just maybe want to teach them, yes. that I like myself subjectively. Yeah. It kind of forced us to think a lot about what was best for them. And even if that meant that they were going to reject us or reject our, our work or whatever to become themselves and we had to accept that you have to let it happen you have to let it happen so you you only really have so much control i think over that process yeah, yeah. to fulfill yourself as a parent yes in, in the sense that Definitely. your own parental instincts will lead the parental archetypes to release mm. themselves yes. appropriately in terms of giving care and love yes and then the final part of being the parent is the letting go yes mm -hmm. not in a dismissive or cold way you're still there receptively if they need you but yeah. You, you you will only damage people if you hang on to them too oh, long. Yes. So do do your best from your heart. I'm sure you'll be fine. There, there are plenty of books out there. Yeah. I wouldn't trust most of them. No, I wouldn't. To, to be honest no. with you. No, I mean, we have a, read a lot of them oh, when yes, the kids were yes, little, but, yeah, but, but yeah. You know, and we've met a lot of people who specialise in that kind of thing. Yeah. I would also, and this is purely personal, please don't accept it, 
Um, my theoretical view separates me from, for example, a lot of the attachment theorists. Um, people like Melanie Klein and the Object Relations School, I think they've been toxic with respect to Jungians. The London School of Jungians, for example, I, I believe personally have been utterly ruined by them. Lots of other Jungians <laughs> believe this too from within the orthodoxy. Um, John Bowlby, who's uh, influenced um, Anthony Stevens very heavily, did a lot on maternal deprivation. He's famous for it. And he's right as far as it goes in the pathological sense. But where there is no need in, in an environmental sense for pathology to even arise in the first place, just don't go there. You don't need it. And with people who have been damaged and hurt as children, you can't change the past, but you can change the present. Yes. And that's true. For adults, you make changes in the present to give people a better future. Going back in, particularly an attachment wound, is not always very positive or productive. No, because very regressive, it's, very, it's it? regressive. It, it, it infantilizes It does infantilize uh, people. Yeah. Inner child work, for example, was yes. very popular in the 1980s mm. and 1990s. It caused so much harm to people. The only value of a child as a symbol is that it represents potential yes. that can grow up. Mm. You do not want to become a child again, or you shouldn't want to become a child again. And you certainly don't want to become a child again in relation to other people who have an adult mindset, yes. which is malevolent towards controlling you. Yes. So if, if you have a, a child image in a dream, I would say, I know this is prescriptive and in a way going against what I said earlier, the only value of the child is that it will grow up and you need to grow up too. And you need to move forward. Yeah, nice. very definitely. Nice, nice. Well, obviously I can't add anything to that to be completely honest i think that's a very very good answer um so well, you have your own experience of your own family you, you, obviously you james you, yes. you have that we we, we all we, we have all that e even yeah. as yeah. uh parents you know we we, we think back to yeah. our own parenting really yeah, yeah. even more so than maybe the, the parenting that we do ourselves yeah we do and of course a lot of damage is done in parental child yes. relationships an yes. awful lot of it yes. does start then but you can't go back in time and fix that wound. By all means, become aware of it. Yeah. But you can't go back and fix it in that frame. You have to fix it from where you are now so yes. you have a different future. And if you have been hurt or abused, do not pass that on. Yeah. You, you, you have a, a moral position that you can take by choice to say it ends here. It yes. ends now. Mm. This is not going to be replicated yes. in the generation that follows from me. Yes. It won't happen. That's probably the best you can do, actually. Absolutely, Steve, isn't yeah. It? yeah. Other, other than that, give love. Yes, give it's, love. It's back to developing yourself yeah. because you, at, at the end of the day, your children are just moving through. Yes, you don't own them. You don't. No, no, them. you really don't. And I know it's probably controversial, but they don't owe you anything either. No, Not if, really. If you do your own job as to, as well as you can by instinct and by yes. archetype, there is yes. nothing more you can do. Yeah, mm. I, I think you should reach a point. I mean, certainly, if I think about myself whereby you're actually grateful for your children moving on because yeah. it allows you to carry on developing yourself yes. for whatever time you have left. Yes. And um, again, that's a gift. It's a gift to be able to say, yes. I, I have my own world, my own work. I want to carry on with that. I, I love you, but I let you go. Um, and if you come back and you come back to see as well, that's a gift back to us yeah. that we, we really appreciate. That, but that's, that's, the, that's the positive animus working in a woman. 
Um, obviously, everybody's perspective is different. Yes. The children will have uh, parental complexes and archetypal expectations and instincts of their parents. If you do the best job you can, everyone will come out relatively unscathed. Yes, but it'll never, it'll never be perfect. Never, no, no. For anyone. No. Neurosis is normal. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, um, 69 Conans is a man, of course, and, and yes. I, 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 I do know him. I do know you. Um, so you, you told me before, re relatively recently, Steve, something that really resonated. Um, no, I've passed it on since about Edward III and the Black Prince and the role of, oh, yes. the, uh, yes. the, role of the father. I think that would be a really cool thing to throw in here, if you don't mind. Well, well, that was mentioned in a context, wasn't it? I mean, will it mean anything if I say that out of... I think so. I, I, yeah. I, I think so in terms of the, the role of, of the father. I, I think knowing 69 Conans, I think this will resonate with him. Yeah, well, I don't know if he would know <laughs> the Battle of Poitiers in the Hundred Years' War. No, it's just... A, I guess just medieval battle, I guess, yeah, yeah. For, for context. He was in France anyway, and King Edward III, who was uh, a very, very successful warrior, king, his son Edward, the Black Prince, uh, was in trouble. He was in serious trouble, could have lost his life, and King Edward III was there with his peers, his, his companions, and they said, your son is in great danger, you know, he's about to lose his life, and the king said, let the boy win his spurs. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Although yes. he was the prince and he was going to be, he was intended to be the successor to the kingdom, to rescue him would mm. have taken away that rite of passage and transformation where he confirmed his own manhood yeah. in front of his father and his mm. father's generation of older men and experienced warriors. Uh, and he did. He did win his spurs. Yeah. Um, very important thing. Yeah, it's it's nice. It resonates with me. I have a feeling it'll resonate with resonate with sixty nine Conans as yeah. well. It's just it's just just a nice way to sort of cap off the uh, the the journey mm. of fatherhood, in a way. Yeah. Um, because to win your Spurs is, is to become a knight. Although he was a prince, yeah. uh, and uh, obviously socially he was much a higher level than a common knight. Even the king and the prince had to be knighted. They had to be knighted. They had to prove themselves. So for him, it was a it was a rite of passage, yes. um, and he let him do it. Plus, plus, I think what you're suggesting too about the role of the women in this, that the women, psychologically speaking, have to hand their sons over to their father or fathers yeah. in order for that to happen. Yes. Because, you know, a, a mother can bring, raise a son to manhood, but she can't, you know, it, it takes yeah. the father's role, doesn't it? That, to... that, that's the intermediate role, yes. isn't it? Uh, it's, it's the father and the peer group. Mm. And then finally, it'll be another woman in a relationship that yeah, ultimately confirms in yes. terms of man but mm. to go through that specific part of the hero archetype as a process remember it's not an individual thing it's mm. an entire process the mm. hero cycle is the mm. archetype not the hero yeah. uh, to go through that um yeah that that's with a peer group or with the older man uh, and then coming out the other side of that the acceptance of him mm. as an ordained man if you like yes. comes from relationship to a mature adult woman and that was first confirmed or should have been confirmed by the mother. Yeah, well, there has to be a letting go by the mother for that to happen. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And that's where people get mother complex issues, yeah. when the mother hangs on to the boy who does mm. not allow him to be confirmed, yeah. does not allow him to go through the hero cycle, the adolescent transition, and then stops him from being confirmed in a relationship to an adult woman Yes. Um, who would, of course, replace her. Yes, yeah. The, the greatest sin of all for a mother who cannot let go mm. of her son. Yeah. Sweet, I like that. Um, so probably best good idea to move on to the next question. This comes from Baldebrock. And uh, oh, yeah. Baldebrock asks, it's, it's a fairly long question. I'll set the scene, I'll tell the story. Then, 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 we'll, 
Of we'll course see, it is. We'll Good see old. what happens. Yeah. So Baldebrock asks, yeah. imagine a patient who committed a sin more depraved and inelegant than anything you have ever encountered and consequently developed a psychological disorder severe enough for him to sense the presence of a spiteful and pimply imp, literally. This man is now possessed by a craving for self-immolation, taking the form of self-imposed retribution to punish the imp, though his ego is so utterly disintegrated that this imp is just as conscious or unconscious as his craving for the cross. How does such a lost soul make himself whole? How could you individuate when you yourself have become void of love, of life, of a centre, as you are consumed by a struggle between pride and self-loathing, whilst the contents of your personality, manifested in your crimes, are too deplorable for you to attain or accept love from without? Is there anyone beyond hope? And for context, he adds, I'm studying The Possessed by Dostoevsky. I'm obviously not asking for myself. <laughs> Taken. No, no worries. Um... Right, okay. Uh, the only people who are beyond hope are psychopaths. Anyone else, anyone else mm. is, has hope. Yes. Uh, a dyed-in-the-wall genetic, 100% nasty, evil psychopath is beyond hope, probably. Yeah. Uh, although there will be a few of them who can be recovered as well, but I am defining it in terms of the absolute the outer limits. The yeah. extreme mm. uh, psychopath is, is beyond hope. Personally, working with, with, with someone, I have worked with psychopaths. The only people I have great difficulty, and I do actually find it impossible to work with, are paedophiles. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, but the description that he gives is uh, a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. the, the only way you're going to deal with, the only two ways you can deal with that initially are going to be medication, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Or it's going to be a, a containing belief system that can utilize those symbols for transformation. And that would be a religion or a belief system that was powerful enough to work on an equivalent level to a belief system, a religion. That will produce some kind of stability. If you try a long-term in-depth analysis with someone like that, it will be very long-term. It may never end because the inductive power of those images is so strong. And from what he's suggesting that this person has a fragmented Ego, ego. Uh, as I say, that, that's a psychosis, and such a person would not be in a safe state to be uh, for themselves or for others. And the way that society normally deals with that is incarceration and medication and a psychiatric unit. Yeah. Yes. Um, black, a black picture, I know, but yeah. he's de he's um, defined the terms that we work from um, in terms of conceptualizing what, what he means by his question. And as far as I understand the question, that's the only kind of bandwidth of answers I can give. Yes. Um, medication uh, until he's stable enough or, or a religion or equivalent belief system that can handle and systematize safely the kind of symbols that he's talking about. And there are various, various belief systems out there that could do that depending upon the initial conditions and conditioning of the individual. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes, sometimes you sorry. do. Sorry, sorry, Steve. Sometimes you you do this. See this kind of conversion with um, criminals. If you like. I mean, we actually need to say we know of someone. Well, we know several um, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who found God? Yeah. I think you probably know who I'm thinking of. There's a lot. Oh yeah, him, him. your namesake, yeah. but it's not you. Um, no, no, it's not. No, me. no, it's not you. <laughs> no. Um, but but he turned to God. There's, there's a lot who've done that yes. actually a lot and you yes. know the others too yes or some of them you know very often with violent psychopaths 
right? One of the things that will correct for that is uh, the Christian God, because that's the most accessible um, version of monotheism that they can access within our culture. And what they find then is a bigger bully than them, which is what they need. And if they can't find a, bi a bigger physical bully, a bigger spiritual bully will do the job yes. nicely. Yeah. And so when they then turn to God and accept the power of this monotheistic God who could destroy them at a level of the soul, mm. then they calm down. And they use that as a way of containing themselves and they begin to self-change. Mm. So yes, they're, they're violent psychopaths, but they wouldn't be on the extreme end of the spectrum that I'm talking about or was talking about yes. earlier. But that's a really good example mm. because some of these guys are, they're not just alphas, they're alpha plus, 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 plus. Yes. and then raised to the power of a hundred. Oh, yeah. You know, the, 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 these particular people are, are devastatingly violent and aggressive. The only thing that's been able to contain them is, as I say, a bigger bully and therefore a bigger super ego than anything that they may have or may not have, may lack in their own nature. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking too about sometimes, and you probably know more about this than I do because of you know, your interest in it, but with Buddhists, for example, sometimes they use the psychopaths, don't oh, yeah, they? In they a do. particular yeah. way, use their energy of yeah, the yeah. community. Yeah, in, the, in Tibetan Buddhist yeah. uh, communities, they actually utilise uh, social behaviours yeah, which are you know, not the best, and they use them for police... Yes. duties and for military that kind of thing yeah. uh, and they usually wait until they're in the 40s these people and then they say now you can start to learn from the, the sutras you can learn buddhism properly yeah. but you weren't ready to do that before so they use up the negative energy yes and then introduce them yeah to the buddhist texts yeah. and scriptures but it wouldn't work the other way around wouldn't, no and they know, they know that and, yes. and the system self-regulates that way mm. 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 okay okay well to go back to Valderbrot's question quickly, because obviously you're into yes. Dostoevsky and you have been for a long time and we've, we've communicated over the Discord about Dostoevsky. I want to kind of give a different angle in, in a way, um, because Dostoevsky obviously received a revival in appreciation and interest thanks to Jordan Peterson coming onto the scene. And the mm. classic thing Peterson talks about is crime and punishment and crime and punishment being the main guy, Raskolnikov. He, he becomes too, too intellectual and he takes away God. It's like Nietzsche's death of God. And then over the course of the book, he goes slowly mad because he realizes that there's essentially an inbuilt psychic law to do with morality that you can't just suppress with thoughts. And it's like, OK, great. But I've never actually seen a discussion of the ending of the book, for example. And it's kind of similar to the way Dante's true meaning is not really uh, d discussed. So the ending of, of Crime and Punishment is very true, for example. And I know you're not talking about Raskolnikov in this situation. You're talking about the possessed, but it's kind of another way to, to illustrate it. Raskolnikov goes through the, the book and he is slowly losing his mind. But at the end, he meets this, I think she's called Sonia, this Sonia character, who is a Christian. Mm. And Sonia is the one who actually redeems him. In a way. Mm. So there is, throughout all of Dostoevsky, because he was a Christian, there is this mm. arc of redemption because he was obviously staring into the in a kind of precognitive way, the shadow of Russia and, and communism coming up forward. So he was looking for redemption. So exactly as you two have described in terms of God being the containing vessel for the evil. That's basically what yes. Dostoevsky was going on about. But in Crime and yeah. Punishment, it's not God. Raskolnikov doesn't turn to God. He turns to Sonia. And that's kind of the, the, the point. The anima is the thing which actually revives yeah. him. And she's kind of like this frail, sickly thing that's, that's sitting in that's a, a tower, a tower somewhere. And she's, she's, she's hanging out there. And there's, there's an appendix or an epilogue to the book where he's in a work camp or something, but Sonia keeps visiting him to give him, keep yeah. giving him hope and hope and hope. So it's not God in this particular case. 
it was actually the anima exactly the same way as dante it's almost a way to be like no, just after because i don't know the story that well is she transformed you say is she kind of you seem to be describing as being almost crippled in some way i don't know if that's accurate yes yeah, so she's, she's, she's described as being very sickly incredibly right. nervous right. you know and then she finds her redemption through raskolnikov and raskolnikov finds his redemption through her but it's mm. it's, a, it's a subtext to, to the book because it's covered with a lot of philosophy and a lot of Christianity. The subtext yes. though is she was the redemption and vice versa. Yeah, well that's just a proper role of the anima uh, but it also describes the relationship of Christianity to the feminine as well. It's reduced largely to a subtext unless it's that's Gnosticism. Yes. So yeah. There's an element there as well yes. perhaps to look at at some point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it, it definitely creeps in. So it, just personal advice, do not know if this is actually your case, Baldebrock, but if you're staring into the shadows of the, of, of the, the possessed or Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. maybe look around it and see what's really going on. Look at Dostoevsky yeah. as a character, look at the context in which it, it was in. Because if, if he is just describing psychosis, it's not particularly, you know, for you and your own personal development, independent of any kind of value judgment, it's not the most useful thing. Maybe the most useful thing would be looking to see how the characters do find their own redemption. That might be why you're attracted to these particular things, yes. and it could be Definitely. hidden within it as this form of subtext. I don't know, though, just a general yeah, aside. Yes, very, good very good yes. point. Very good point, James. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So mm-hmm. moving on to, to Simon or Simmond. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce your name. Um, and he asks, uh, are there any sources you could recommend regarding Jungian approaches to governance? Whilst there are Vedic or Verdic yeah. Vedic writings on Dharmic governance and writings from people like Evola and even some Hegelians on forms of mythic governance, are there any specifically Jungian writings to draw from? Okay, uh, two of uh, two levels there, perhaps, uh, and I may not have understood the question. I, I apologise to him if, if that's the case. Mm. Purely at a superficial level about governance and politics, uh, Jung himself did stand for election and failed. Um, I don't know if, if that's generally known, but you can find it in any decent biography of Jung. I think it was a good thing, mm. uh, because had he given way to the power principle in himself, it, he would have sabotaged his own individuation, but notice he did still do it, still did go towards it. Um, governance, does he mean on a cultural level uh, and some kind of organising principle that works through cultures? Yes, I th- sure. yeah, I think that's the idea. Yeah, it does mean that. Um, yeah, Jung writes a lot about that. Um, I would recommend Civilization and Transition, which I think is Collected Works 10. Yes. Oh, I'm just checking, excuse me. Yeah, I, th- I think it is. I think it is. Uh, where are we? Can you see everything? See through your big pile of books. Psychology and Religion, There we go. I think it's 10 or 11, something like that. Why are you 10? 10. Yeah, I'd recommend that. Get your grips with it at that level. And um, once this is resolved in terms of seeing what his thoughts and feelings are, come back from that uh, and look at the context within which we're all flourishing or not flourishing at the moment. That will probably help to, to balance things out. But yeah, I would look at civilization and transition. Mm. Oh, and also the, the paper uh, Young Diagnoses the Dictators. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. radio interviews where he discusses Mussolini, Hitler and Stalin as well because uh, that's governance too that, that illustrates the rise of fascism and communism and their collision essentially in the European continent uh, and how that would spread out over the world and this was an American journalist who was very probably a CIA agent because Jung himself was a CIA agent that's only recently been revealed and confirmed mm-hmm. by, the, by the CIA in America 
and it was a precursor to the Second World War and a psychological angle on what was going on. But it was something that was allowed to come out, whereas most of Young's work for the CIA remained secret, this psychological analysis of, um, of these political figures and leaders. Mm. Hope that helps anyway. Um, Perfect. If you understood your question, please ask again yes. or send me something on the Discord. I'll be more than happy to help if I can. Thank you. Brilliant. Fantastic. Okay. Well, uh, Simon also asked a follow-up question, kind of similar, but kind of different. And he asks, uh, World War I was the event that heralded the end of the long 19th century and the puerile hopes of eternal liberal progress that the Anglophone cultures particularly held on to. This almost ending of weak progressive history could be considered to be similar to the situation today, where the modern left liberal progress narrative and its own puerile hopes are coming to an end. In terms of things missing today that were present during the Edwardian period, what might then be rediscovered as resonant within an exploration of World War I? Well, where does one start? Duty, discipline, courage, family, nation, the list is long. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that, uh, but, but um, can we abstract the question out from that? Because I actually agree with the statements in broad terms that it's, uh, it's certainly illustrating a compensation for what's going on now. Uh, and as I think has been discussed on the, on the Discord uh, channel, there's a lot of interest in the First World War coming out in, in movies and in popular culture yes. at the moment. And you have obviously a, a hero cycle working itself through for younger men there in absolutely perfect form. But also the idea of senseless sacrifice and manipulation by other people, by older generations and so forth. And it was the end of an era. Uh, without a doubt, even more so than the Second World War. Lots of good things came out of, from the Second World War, lots of bad things too. Um, and you can consider World War One and World War Two to be a continuum. They had a little break in between of 19 mm. years before, you know, the second mm. half kicked off. But yeah, it, it, Britain had an empire, good or bad, whatever you may think of that, and you can argue either way about that. Um, but there was certainly a national identity that was, was firmly in place mm. across the West. Um, and it was a very definite role for young men, which is missing now. Yes. And it's deliberately been taken away as well. I don't think there's any doubt about no. that. Yeah. So there will be a, an archetypal compensation arising. And we're probably just seeing that beginning to surface now above the water. But there's a lot more beneath that too. And there will eventually be a cultural enantiodromia. There will be a reversal. Mm. Um, and the present political uh, zeitgeist will go I hope in the lifetime of you young people. Yes. Yeah. Because it is, it is awful. It's catabolic. It's it destructive. Is. It will pass. I, I hope soon. We can remember even with respect to our own son yeah. growing up. The, the, you know, the, those ideas that little boys shouldn't play with guns, yeah. for example. I mean, that's, yeah. that's happened in, in his lifetime. Yeah. He's grown up with that. Yeah, and it, was taken off and it, it was, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, when I was growing up, it was normal. Every every little boy was a proto-soldier, and it was expected that you would be. You know, my father and his uh, generation, the Second World War, my grandfathers, both of them, First World War, uh, and that was what was passed down. It was that expectation mm. that, that you would follow suit. But something changed. Something changed in the late 1960s through the hippies and the, you know, the age of Aquarius and all of that, which was really a false start um, and we're living with that now, I think, to some extent. Yes. It's obviously not a good thing 
to go into a militaristic society that exports destruction and death all over the place mm. but we don't have to go in the yeah. opposite direction yeah. to the extent that we have where men are being neutered on mass culturally and psychologically at least it could have been healthily expressed and through fantasy which yes. of course is what it was yes yeah. it was innocent yeah. wasn't yeah. It? It, was it was innocent, innocent. enough was and innocent. Uh, like you say if you repress these things it goes somewhere else they do Indeed. Yeah, my well, when I was growing up, it's interesting because I'm 23, so probably mm. the same age or roughly the same as your son. Um, yeah, and I uh, that was never a thing in terms of boys can't play with guns. It was very much yeah. uh, you know we come from a small, small town in in Surrey, England, and mm -hmm. uh, I used to play around with guns all the time. You know the the, the finger guns, bang bang bang. Yes. It was it was well, only like then uh, you you know you. <laughs> well, 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 children are being sent home from school, even recently, weren't oh, yes. they, for doing that? Well, Female were. teachers yes. would yes. send boys would. home, they would be excluded from school because they did what you just said. Yes. Yes, yes. And so yeah. it didn't happen when I, when I was a kid, but when I was say, older in sixth form or something, these yes. things would, would go on. And, and around the time I was, I was not switched on politically at all, I was like, that's kind of a bit weird. You know, yes. why, why is that going on? But my, my antidote has always been, do it anyway. You know, obviously, you're asking the question, Simon. I imagine you're not a seven-year-old who wants to go bang bang with your finger guns. But, yes. but if 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 some if the environment is like you can't be a masculine man, I say mm. screw it. Basically, mm. you're less and, likely and... to you're less likely to become a violent psychopath if you if you can yeah. do those sorts of things in a harmless way. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, guess so. Depression always it, bites it does. Back. It has to come back in some form. It will. And bite it will. you on the backside. Yeah. Yeah. At, at the moment, we have a particularly oppressive police force in the UK. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I say that as someone who has served in the police, and I, I know that the it wasn't perfect in my day. It was no. far from it. There was corruption. There was violence. Now it is sick. Yes. It is seriously, seriously yes. sick. And it reflects the culture <clears throat> that we're living in. And I don't mean the individual people, the young people, the up and coming generation. I mean the people who are holding the power. The oh, people yeah. who are holding the power, who are in early to, to uh, middle age, early mm. middle age to middle age, they are sick. They are mm. seriously sick. This mm. culture is sick. And it's really down to, to you lads and lasses to do something about it. I mm. hope you do, for the sake mm. of yes. everyone. Yeah. Well, I guess myself, Simon, and all the young to live by lads and lasses, of course, that's uh, our, our, our new calling. We'll be sure to do that. Don't worry. We have it under control. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the penultimate question then comes from Based Magus, and he asks, what is the correct course of action when the images and narratives that have heavy resonance seem to be distant from any understandable archetype? There are many cases of individuals who face mythic structures mirroring Arthurian myth, ancient Greco-Roman narratives, and the like. What then must be done when the archetypes that manifest are decidedly alien? For example, drawing more from ideas such as Lovecraft or Burroughs. What do you think? Okay, I think we, we have to, that's a really good question. Uh, thank you for that. I think we have to distinguish, of course, between an archetypal image and the archetype in itself. But we need to make a further adjustment to that and think very, very much in local terms about what's going on in our own culture. Uh, and why certain representations, collective representations, are being made. That, that's a big thing all on its own. The other thing is that um, collective myths are not personal myths. A collective myth, even if it's Arthurian, for example, may help you to access your personal myth, but it's just as likely to conceal it because it's distracting on the one hand, and on the other hand, it is so charged with symbolism that if you over-identify with it, you will lose yourself. 
So a collective myth is not a personal myth. Uh, and, and this is something that I'd like with Pauline and yeah. with James to, to work through over forthcoming uh, podcasts. To get to the axis of your own timeline, you have to work through and around all the things that have gathered around it. So if you have a, a myth, a collective one, which is resonating with you, it's because either it's distracting you or it's trying to get you to get to your core essential self. That's uh, a job all of its own. If you get something which is false and fake and it's being imposed or you're not resonating with, that's either worse or it's a good thing because you're not being distracted by fake narratives, fake cultural narratives. Um, you would then hopefully fall back on yourself more by saying, I'm not going to engage with any of this. I'm going to go in. I'm going to find out what my real personal myth is. Yeah. I'm going to access my own self. And then the psyche will give you what you need to understand because you're making the effort to go in and to ignore things. Uh, because, for example, if you engage with um, anything, I'll say Game of Thrones, and I've got nothing against yes, Game of Thrones. That, that was in my mind. Strange, um, yeah. Because it's an obvious one. You engage with Game of Thrones as, as some kind of illustrative personal mythology. <clears throat> well, it's not personal, it's collective. Um, so, yeah, use it, bounce off it, go back in yourself. But if that's being used to sell a political message to you, a, a message of control, and you internalize it, then that's damaging. Mm. So discrimination is very, very important. Stand outside the times within which you live. Look back, but also look forward. Then you get a proper perspective. To do that, though, you need to get hold of your own Ariadne thread, the thing that has led from your beginning and will take you out the other end of life as well. Um, if you get hold of that, you're not going to, to go far wrong. Mm. But be very, very careful of people who would impose and dictate what narratives, mythic narratives, you, you, that you should resonate with. So I would regard it as an opportunity if things are not uh, resonating with you to disengage from that and to go in and to find yourself. There's mm. a proliferation of fantasy out there, yes. isn't there? Yeah. At yeah. the moment. Yeah. Huge amount of yeah. it. And I, I would say that that's mm. the, the same as a soap opera at that point these mythic narratives are actually being reduced to the level of a soap opera that they're just inductive forms, hypnotic mm. forms uh, of representation that don't really give you anything other than a distraction from yourself. Steve, do you think a lot of young men are engaging in that though, because they feel disenfranchised? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Mm. They're all looking for something. Yeah. But even if you go back to Arthur, what, what, what version of him? Sir Thomas Mallory's? Well, yeah. Which is the popular one. That's not the original and it's not the only. Um, there were medieval versions which are not contained within Thomas Mallory. Gawain and the Green Knight is not within Sir Thomas Mallory's canon. It stands outside of it, but it's possibly far more valuable than almost anything you're going to get out of uh, Sir Thomas Mallory mm. in and of itself. Yes. So be really, really careful about what you, yeah, you it's take in. It's far more in. instructive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Coll a collective myth, I can't say it too many times, a collective myth is not a personal myth. Mm. And if you're feeling a separation, I think that's a good thing. I really yeah. do. Yes. Yeah, well, this stuff, uh, it does hit close to home based on my own development. I did, uh, I was very, very attached to the idea of the knight before I understood Jung properly or in the way that I, I currently do. Very attached to the idea of the knight. And I was like, I am a knight. I am a knight. And of course, the Young to Live by audience, you guys will, will know this, but in case it's your first video, I just kind of want to stress to echo what Steve was saying there. Um, you're not the warrior archetype. You're not the magician archetype. You aren't, in this particular case, not saying you are base mages, but you're not uh, the guy who kills the um, Lovecraftian gods 
dots. They're all separate images, and if they draw, yes. they will draw you in. So you say you've got the the whole suite yes. of all of mm. the images. Mm. Certain ones will appeal to you for certain mm. personal reasons. Yeah. Yes. But these are images created by somebody else or from the the, the collective unconscious in general yeah. as dialectic communications with the ego yes. and mm. it's like well okay why are they resonating with me that's the point and they they could yeah. be for a good reason as you were saying or th- yeah. with me in particular there was a, a strong complex part of that it's based on my own personal myth and removing it in, interjects from other things which i had experienced in in the past that's a good so very good it's very good mm. uh, really really good insight that you've you've identified it as a complex which yes. is masquerading as an archetype yes yeah and they can mm. and they do and they mm. will you know, it, it's really, really important. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to no. that, that is a really, really good discrimination that you've yes. made, there, a very effective and helpful one. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope it's helpful to, to other people watching because there is a lot of disinformation, especially I am the warrior archetype is the most common one. It comes mm. from King Warrior Magician Lover, which is uh, it's, it's, it's a fun book. A pointless book i'm just going to say throw it throw it away it's not going to help you with any, with anything be a lot of people wouldn't you if you were because even joseph campbell said you'd have a thousand faces <laughs> yeah very very true just try wearing one the one that you've got live yes, with it get yes. out there and self-actualize don't yes around trying well, to be everything else is, everything else is an illusion isn't it <laughs> yes absolutely, that you, that yeah. you create yeah. um yeah. through fantasy yeah. that you're actually able to manipulate these worlds these fantastical worlds um, but they're just taking you further and further away from yourself. Yeah. And who yeah. you're meant to be. The, the neurotic alibis, yeah. they're guiding fictions. Yeah. They're not real. Brilliant. Brilliant. I like that. Bringing it back to the to the personal myth. I like that. Uh, but I guess time to move on to the to the very final question. This one comes yeah. from Nick D. Now, Nick, I have edited your question okay. slightly, but the 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 meaning is still there. Uh, basically, he asks: Is sexuality related to the anima or the animus? Right, um, shall I or...? You can kick off if you want yeah. to. Yeah, it, it um, tends to obscure it, doesn't it? it? That tends to be our position on it. Sorry, I've spoken before. <laughs> you can kick off, but I'm saying. <laughs> Come on, I'll let you... There finish. is the assertive animus, and <laughs> rightly so as well. Yeah. Um, if I were to paraphrase Bill Clinton, dare I do this? No. Instead of saying, it's the economy, <laughs> stupid, right? <laughs> it's the relating factor, stupid. And I don't um, mean you... Uh, don't, don't it's not personal. No, no, not at all. It's just a handy way of saying to yourself, mm. just wake up and remember, it is not about sexuality, it's about relating. Relating involves sexuality, but sexuality can be independent of relating. Yes. You can have sex with people not relate to them at all. Mm. This is one of the issues with toxic masculinity. Mm. But relating starts instantly that you're born with your primary caregiver, and it, it characterizes everything until if you're unfortunate enough that something like dementia sets in, and you can't even relate to yourself anymore, right? Uh, but, but from beginning to that, the relating factor is everything. Now, the anima is not a single thing, right? It, it's, it's projected out, and we call it the anima in a man, but it's just the relating function. Yes. You could have called it anything. Yes. And it can go to any object, any situation, any belief system that you interact and relate with that mobilizes that, that force and that drive within you usually usually it's transferred onto women when you're a man and when you're a woman usually it's transferred onto men but it's not that sexuality is definitely a part of relating and it's therefore definitely mm. connected to the anima but they are not the same thing uh, very very important to make that distinction mm. okay 
Okay. Well, may- maybe in the future, eventually down the line, we'll, we'll tackle more of the because it's a it's obviously a thing, and I understand the curiosity around it. Completely valid yes. question. Yes. Jung did. Uh, in fact, he actually did it in Ion as well, but he did it in other places where he gave an explanation for say homosexuality based in the anima and the animus. So obviously there will be a lot of intrigue in there. Maybe we can tackle it in the future. Yeah. But I I, I definitely yeah. agree with what. Can, what can, you're can saying I say? I, I would agree with you that that does need to be tackled, and one thing you need to understand everybody needs to appreciate about about carl jung is that carl jung's collected works are the works through exposition of his own personal myth and what you're seeing there is his psyche his adaptations his maladaptations and his journey yes and he didn't want to revise anything he'd written even though he knew that later on he did revise it himself he did he wouldn't go back and change things he said in 1912 in 1950 yeah. He let them stand. He let them stand for a reason because it shows the, the development yes. of his thinking. Mm. The attitude towards homosexuality at that time produced that kind of response. I'm not saying that we know better now, but that we know differently. Yeah. And if you insist on sexualizing the anima, and paradoxically Jung said that you shouldn't, um, then you're going to get that kind of thing emerging. I've worked with plenty of gay people of both mm, sexes. Many, yeah. Uh, many who have been through trauma pushed into that situation, some of them by direct sexual and, and psychological abuse from their mother, yes. being forced as adults to yes. sleep and have sex with their yes, mother, for example. Yeah. I've seen that so many times. And that appears to have produced mm. um, homosexuality. Uh, with y- young girls who've been indecently exposed to by their father or penetrated orally by their father as children, who've, who have then uh, turned into lesbians, they believe. But when you work with them in depth, you're in a completely different world. And even the, the trauma, the image of the trauma changes. Huh? Tra- traumatic images are dynamic things and they sit at a level of awareness and they can sit in you somatically and they can hurt and destroy you. But you can transcend them. It is possible. And it's, it's that that I'm interested in, in a therapeutic sense, to see how people deal with that. And when you get down to the level where that can be dealt with, what we think applies no longer applies. Everything changes. And, and, and that's really where we should go in future podcasts to help people to understand the true meaning of archetypes rather than their manifest appearance, which yes. is symbols in a social sense. And very often they're not symbols, they're signs because they're, cons- they're consciously constructed and manipulated, which is not the definition of a symbol for Carl Jung. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And on that note, I guess we should, uh, we should close up. So, first of all, thank you, Steve. Thank you, thank, thank you Pauline. Thank you very much. Thank you for all the questions. I apologise if I, I didn't answer them properly. Uh, if you're on the Discord, let me know, and I'll see what's up, what I can do. But apologies in advance. No, brilliant. I'm sure you did an absolutely fantastic job. From my point of view, and anyway. Uh, but on, on that note, if you'd like to join the Discord, you can do so through the Patreon link in the description. And if you'd like to join in with this podcast, it happens once a month. Sometimes we seem to have done a bonus episode so far in the first month. Uh, if you sign up at the $10 tier or higher, then you get to join one of these nine individuals, something like that, and ask a question. Of course, there are other things on there as well, such as a chat with Steve and Pauline or a chat with me joining the Inner Circle. It's all there. Go go check it out. It's good stuff. And of course, if you want the, uh, a link to the uh, a free download link to the Shadow Integration Manual, which is something Steve and I wrote, mostly Steve, of course, because you've got the you've got the experience. Then a link to to download that will be in the description down below. Completely free, no strings attached. The stuff is important, and we'd like to give it to you. So on that note, thank you everybody. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Pauline. We will see you again real soon. Thank you. Thank you.